Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hi again, and welcome to the New Books and Latino Studies, a channel with the New Books Network. I am your host, Tiffany Gonzalez, and today on the program we have Dr. Jose Alamillo, a professor in the Department of Chicana and Chicano Studies at California State University, Channel Islands. Dr. Alamillo is the author of Making Lemonade Out of Lemons, Mexican-American Labor and Leisure in a California Town from 1880 to 1960. But today, he, he is here to discuss his new book, Deportes, The Making of a Sporting Mexican Diaspora, published with Rutgers University Press in 2020. Hi, Jose. I'm so excited to have you on the New Books Network and Latino Studies today. Hello. Hi, Tiffany. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. Absolutely. Um, so to start off, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your personal and professional background? Sure. Um, so I was born in Mexico, um, Zacatecas, uh, and at the age of seven, uh, I migrated to the U.S. to reunite with my family, who had previously um, migrated, and, and I was in Mexico for, for two years with my grandparents, and um, my family worked in the citrus industry, which actually was inspiration for my first book. Um, and, you know, one of the things about being in the citrus industry is that it's a year-round industry so allowed me to go to school year round and I think that was a big deal because I was able to get a public school education and I remember in high school I was recruited to be part of a summer program by the EOP uh, program and uh, I was able to go to UC Santa Barbara and I really you know I think that really changed my life I think it inspired me to go to college and so I became um, what I call an affirmative action baby because, you know, um, I was the only one in my family who attended a four-year college at that time, and uh, it really opened opportunities for me. And so I I like to claim that affirmative action label. Um, And then, you know, I was there for about five years because I really still didn't know what to do (laughs) with myself. And um, I think that... um, what really inspired me to go to graduate school was taking a Chicano studies classes, uh, where I really found myself and my identity and my culture. And that really motivated me to go to grad school. So I started at UC Irvine, um, where I found great mentors there. And I was able to, you know, write my dissertation there, which was essentially my first book. And um, part of the reason is because I was so close to the town of Corona. You know, and so uh, I think that was easier for me to write than, say, going and writing about my hometown. Um, but uh, yeah, eventually I ended up at Washington State University, where I started my first professor job in the Comparative Ethnic Studies Department. And, and I think that's really where I seriously started thinking about writing about sports. Uh, I think part of it, you know, I was surrounded by Pac-10 football <laughs> in that college town. And uh I think that that definitely was one of the reasons. Um, yeah, so uh, I was there for about nine years, and then in two thousand eight, 
uh, I had the opportunity to come back to California and uh, build the Chicano Studies uh, program here at California State University Chicano Islands, which I should say it's in Camarillo, not on the actual islands, Chicano Islands, because some people confuse where my location is. Um, so yeah, returning to Southern California really helped me shape the book, um, and it really opened it up in new directions. And so, yeah, so I'm here now, and now I'm a chair of the Chicano Studies Department. Well, congratulations. I was not aware on the the new move, you being chair. That's congratulations. Um, and I really want to say that reading your book, I know you mentioned in your book reading, um, not reading, you wrote about how when you were at um, Washington State, you, that's where you learned how to play tennis and how that also influenced like, your thinking, right, of the sport and how you wrote this. And I just want to say you you did such a wonderful like that's not even a good word to say what you did with this book. It's remarkable. Like everything, how you outlined it, how you formulated it, your analysis, your findings, the pictures. Um, but before we go and dive into that, to the actual meat of the book, can you tell us a little bit about why you decided to write on this topic a little bit more and how like the certain aspects of, you know, you, you spoke about uh, boxing, baseball, softball, and what, what drew you to those particular sports to write about? Yeah, so I think, yeah, I think it, well, it started with, you're right, like I started to learn tennis. <laughs> and um, and then I got got to think about, well, you know, am I the first to do this? <laughs> um, and no, I wasn't. And so I looked into the history of tennis and wanted to know more about uh, the history of Latinos in tennis. And I ran into Pancho Gonzalez and, you know, no one had told me about him and I was discovering him. And uh, that really motivated me to dig into the other sports, right? So I think I really wanted to understand that history of Mexican athletes in how it's depicted in the American imagination. You know, um, whenever, you know, I ask somebody about, you know, who is a Mexican athlete that you know that comes to your mind? And always it's like Fernando Venezuela, you know, or they may say Julio Cesar Chavez, Um so I wanted to really introduce uh, people to other names, other professional and amateur athletes uh, of Mexican descent that that folks never heard of. And so I think that that was really important for me as to one of the reasons. But I also, you know, I also wanted to offer a counter narrative to a lot of the racist images of Mexicans, um, especially, you know, th- those negative images that are perpetuated by the current occupant of the White House. Um you know, so I, I really wanted to push back on these racist stereotypes about Mexicans out there. And so through this book, I want to offer a more um, positive counter narrative about the contributions that Mexican athletes have made to the sports, um, both in the U.S., but also in Mexico. So I wanted to challenge th- those those uh, negative depictions. Um, but also, you know, I'm a big sports fan, as you as you noted, you know, I start with my opening about my own family's history with sports. And, you know, my dad is the biggest sports fan that I know to this day. And I grew up playing sports with my cousins. And and so I really, that's really where I learned about, um, you know, issues of race, gender, identity. Um, and it's really, you know, in sports that we learn more also about other racial and ethnic groups. You know, before we actually learn about their history or their politics or their economic situation, um, 
we really begin there in sports, right? It's, it's such an uh, effective emotion that when we play sports, right, it's very visceral. Um, and so I think that that also was another motivation is that uh, I wanted I wanted readers to connect to, you know, um, the, the way in which sports becomes a way of building community about, you know, looking at the world uh, in, in a, through a different lens, um, especially looking at especially politics, identity, race, and, and gender. Um, yeah, so th- those are some of the reasons why I think motivated me to write the book. And it really shines through in your discussions about um, racial formation and how sport helps kind of negotiate gender identities, gender social norms. Um, but also, it's through your your conceptual framework, right? Can you talk a little bit about the historiographical contributions of what you mean by a Mexican diaspora, like through sport, they're creating this or gave rise to this? Yeah, so, you know, th- this... I think this notion of the diaspora really, I think, comes from um, reading a lot on the Black diaspora. And so I, I, I wanted to think about the diaspora in the way that we think about the Black diaspora, right? And so I really relied on the work of um, Ben Carrington uh, and, you know, Paul Gilroy and, and many others have written on, on, like, the Black athlete, right? That's a global phenomenon. And so I wanted to do that, but for Mexican athletes, right? So I wanted to look at this notion of the sporting Mexican diaspora. Um, And the way that I went about it is I I started to just trace this this notion of the Mexican athlete. And and in order to really uh, understand it, I had to cross borders, right? I had to really go to Mexico and do research there and spend time there. And, but also... Um, you know, do the research that was needed in, in the more local, regional area. So I spent time in Southern California where I really began to sort of follow the, the careers of different athletes. And, and they really did led me to um, understand this concept of diaspora that's really about this notion that we're really crossing national borders, but we're also crossing racial and gender borders when we think about the opportunities of playing sports, right? Um, when we're often limited by our own either class background um, or racial discrimination or just the lack of opportunities, right? We seek out, right, opportunities to play, right? And I think that's one of the things that Mexican athletes did is they, they sought out those opportunities whenever and wherever. And we definitely see that through um, the stories of a lot of the baseball players, um, and so this diaspora in, in many ways was for, was created by, by these athletes, but it wasn't just athletes. I really talk about the diaspora in a broader sense, too, that we must also talk about the industry, the sports industry, the coaches, the fans, uh, the managers um, and the media. Right. Like, I, I think it's important to talk about the sports journalists that helped in the creation of the diaspora. So I try to look at the sporting diaspora in a broader sense, um, because I think that that's something that I I needed to do in order to fully get a more complete picture of um, of the of the Mexican athlete in in both the U.S. and in Mexico. So so yeah, so I I, I tried to 
also uh, makes Sports Central, I think, to the making of both Mexican-American identity, but also Mexican identity, right? So uh, I think often Latino studies, um, you know, has often regulated the area of sports to leisure or play or not really been taken seriously like labor and politics, right? So um, I always tell people that, you know, when we think about our civil rights leaders like Bert Corona or Corky Gonzalez or Emma Tenayuca, right? We never think of them as athletes. We think of them as only as leaders. But what I show in the book is that these leaders were also leaders on the playing court, on the, on the court, you know, on the playing field. Um, you know, they develop these organiza- organizing and leadership skills while playing their favorite sport. Absolutely. That's, that was something that really struck me because I guess reading about Emma part of me, it really struck me when you said that you're like, yeah, like there's, they're not just one dimensional leaders or figures within this history. I mean, they have other lives, right? They've lived other journeys and how, I mean, sports, of course, like how do they negotiate that or engage in that? And you also point out later in the chapters um, how sports allowed them to create networks for, you know, for later civil civil rights activism or how some of the women were for forerunners um, mm-hmm. for gender equality, gender equity. Um, well, we can get to that a little bit later. Now, can you start us off by kind of telling us a little bit about like the origins? Cause then in chapter one, you just, you start discussing about how, um, Mexico opened up its doors to U.S. businessmen and to sports promoters and educators and how that really shaped sports in Mexico. And what did that lead to? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's important to, um, you know, to connect the the early history, right, and the rise of sports, um, that it wasn't a national history. It was a binational history in, in many ways we see the rise of sports in Mexico uh, being influenced by the YMCA, right? So the YMCA becomes an important institution early on in Mexico City. And then, of course, it opens up branches elsewhere. So I look at the YMCA and how it helped in, in introduce basketball um, and volleyball and other sports like gym, gymnastics to Mexican um, citizens. And and I think that they, were, they weren't just introducing sports, right? They were also promoting a kind of muscular Christianity, right? Uh, so very middle-class, uh, religious, Protestant identity uh, to, most, to mostly like middle-class Mexicans who could afford, right, to, to actually be members of the YMCA. So, um, but a lot of the early sports promoters and leaders, right, come out of the YMCA offices. Um, and so they actually become involved in like leading the Olympic teams, uh, you know, to their first Olympic games in 1924 in, in Paris, France, and then subsequently to LA in 1932, right? So, so I think it's important to, to look at the role of the U.S. institutions and how they help and develop uh, sports in Mexico. Um, and, and we see that also with like baseball and boxing, right? Because, you know, when most people think about, you know, sports in Mexico, they think of soccer, but really the, the earliest, you know, sports were baseball and boxing. And in boxing in particularly was very important um, as, as really a popular sport in, in, 
in Mexico. And but boxing is not never an, a sort of a, a local or national sport. It's an international sport, you know, because you have to develop these networks and um, you have to go global right early on to be able to, you know, practice and um, have your, you know, opportunities to box. And so, yeah, so I look I look at sort of the early development sports in in, in Mexico. And then I also look at the ways in which um, the U.S. writers and reformers are writing about athletes, Mexican athletes, in a very derogatory, racial, paternalistic sense um, that they really needed help in guidance in developing the sport. Um, and, and so I think there was a lot of like... Um, you know, looking down at Mexican athletes as being sort of inferior, that they couldn't play, they didn't have the ability to play. Uh, part of those racial, uh, you know, understandings of Mexican athletes. And so those those um, continued, right, into the U.S., right? So when they come as immigrants in the U.S., those very much, those racial ideas continued, right, when you see them uh, in the playgrounds or in schools that, you know, they're confronted, right, with this idea that, Oh, you're Mexican, therefore you cannot play certain sports, right? Um, because either your size or your, you know, your height, and and you know, um, also because you know there was the understanding that you never had any background in that sport or were introduced to that sport, right? And so, especially when we think about those sports, right? They're not you don't commonly see uh, Mexican and Latino athletes like tennis, for example. And that's why I think, you know, tennis, uh, when you see, when you hear about the, the story of Pancho Gonzalez, it's remarkable, right? Because he was literally the only Mexican-American in that predominantly white sport. And he literally won back-to-back national championships, right? I mean, that that's remarkable, right? That, you know, people need to understand how, you know, we've had these first champions, right, in these sports that we don't necessarily think about being predominantly you know, Latino or Mexican sports. No, you don't. You bring that, you bring that story where you make that story shine. And you also argue it's like the power of whiteness, right? The power of whiteness and power and media and how, who's been the stere- the racialized stereotypes that, that, that have been imposed on um, these Mexican athletes. Something that you mentioned a little bit earlier. So I want to go back to that is that you mentioned immigration, right? And so you mentioned specifically these boxers that are there are having to cross borders, and at the time, the 1920s and 1930s, there is, as they call, you know, a Mexican problem. Quote, right? How does that affect the the the, the mobility of athletes to travel across borders when, at the national level, there's immigration laws, there's immigration poly- policies, per- like purposely targeting a, a, a particular demographic? Yeah, no, I think I think that. Um... Definitely immigration laws had a huge impact on Mexican athletes and their ability to, right, to enter the country, right, and, and, and participate in the sport. Uh, so you have to go back, right, and look at the 1885 alien contract labor law, right, that this is also a law that um, was in place to prohibit the importation of foreign laborers under contract. So this law for a long time uh, really prevented from athletes to come in and actually, um, you know, uh, participating in a professional sport because, again, they were under contracts and that was outlawed. And so they essentially uh, had to find a way around that. And so that for Mexican boxers in particular, right, 
they were always viewed with suspicion. And so um, part of it was that there was a lot of these racist and nativist sentiments that viewed them as potential competitors, right, to other white European boxers. Um, and so there was a lot of that discourse that said that Mexican boxers um, are taking white boxers' jobs and so forth. I mean, and, and you know, and Mexican boxers were coming in for any opportunity to box, and sometimes they would use as fodder, meaning that they wouldn't really be getting these, like, um, you know, th- these per- big purses, you know. I mean, they were really just taking any bouts, any matches they could get. And so uh, they were used uh, for other boxers to, you know, get ahead and, you know, to accrue um, a winning record. Um, so, you know, the, the the early boxers had a difficult time crossing the border. So I talk a lot about that and, and how some of the, boxers in the 1930s were actually prohibited from entering and they were actually held uh, at the border um, until their promoters, U.S. promoters and, um, and, and, and writers, sports journalists helped to release them, right? In fact, I show how the boxing industry had to lobby the federal government, the, at that time was the Labor Department, to allow these boxers to enter and to actually fight because there was a lot of money to be made, right? Um, but it wasn't necessarily money for just the boxers, right? I mean, matchmakers, promoters were making big money, right? So uh, ultimately, the public campaign that allowed them to enter uh, really resulted in this temporary admittance policy that was formulated under immigration law, right? So temporary admittance really meant that they could enter, but they had to pay a $500 bond and they and and so they had to also uh, return within six months. And if they didn't, then they would have to pay that bond, right? So, so definitely um, they they were uh, here temporarily, right? Um, but they have to re- you know return when they were done with their with their boxing uh, matches. And so I look at that as to, as to as a way to highlight how sports was a big industry early on, and it in many ways treated. Mexican boxers as laborers, right? So it's not too different from how agribusiness treats laborers, right? It's sort of cheap labor. Um, they can hire them for less, right? But then also fire them if they don't need them anymore, right? So they're dispensable. And so we, so I make that connection with how how we have to look at sports as as labor as well, right? Um, it's not just an entertainment. It's not just a form of a leisure, right? But it's work. It is, and you. Sh- I mean, it does shine through in that chapter um, when you speak about this, the immigration concerns and the racialization process, right, of these athletes that are coming, um, that are having issues within the U.S. But you, you also transition to talking about the next chapter about the negotiation, per- per- perhaps also the ability that um, athletes are able to illustrate agency and enact agency for themselves. Um, and do you speak about this in the chapter uh, when you start talking about baseball mm-hmm. um, and these transnational local connections that that baseball and softball um, in Mexico during the 1920s and 1930s um, are being forged between baseball players and the local um, local communities and connections in Mexico? Can you speak a little bit about that? Like, how is how, what's what else is going on in the 1920s and 1930s that's allowing for the negotiation and the expression of agency by these players and what, what are they challenging or what are they not challenging? Yeah. So I, I think that there was a lot going on, you know, in the twenties 
with the rise of Mexican immigration, you have the rise of the Mexican problem, right? Um, but what's interesting about the Mexican problem is that we tend to think of that, well, you know, that's definitely a very nativist movement against directed Mexican uh, immigrants. But at the same time, we also see this kind of fascination with Mexican culture, right? Like you have this sort of uh, fascination with Mexican art. Uh, so we, you know, we see the, the also fascination with with the Mexican marketplace in La Placita, right? Um, you know, when, you know, the La Placita, the Ali Plaza was sort of now resurrected to make it like a Mexican marketplace, right? And so, but you also see uh, also a fascination with Mexican boxing, right? So, you know, other scholars have looked at how Mexican boxing becomes cachet and becomes in vogue, right? Because there's a lot of money to be made, uh, you know, and, and we... We also can look at the sort of the Mexican cinema, right? The, the rise of like Dolores del Rio. Dolores del Rio in particular was a big boxing fan that she would really, she really in many ways started this whole movement of Hollywood to to attend um, big sports venues, right? Because she was literally in the front seats cheering for her favorite Mexican boxers. At the Olympic Auditorium, you know, she would never miss a, a match about with a Mexican boxer. Right. So there was this interesting, uh, you know, fascination with Mexican boxing. And so I think that you also see that very similar with with baseball. Right. Um, in baseball, you have, um, you know, the the White Sox Park that I have a photograph there where you really see how uh, becomes uh, very much a, a, a business. Right. I mean, you have essentially vendors that sell their tamales right in front of the park and then you have huge mexican fan base right um, cheering their favorite team and so i think that what happens then is that um these owners of these teams and i focus particularly on the zapateros right the um zapateros that really become um important because they were able to leverage right this fascination with an interest in mexican baseball uh, and they were able to leverage it by by essentially creating a whole like summer season of just Mexican baseball teams that would literally be coming from Mexico and they would be playing uh, other Mexican-American teams in L.A. So you had this huge event every Sunday where you had fans, you had music, you had speakers, you had Hollywood celebrities attending these events as well. And they were leveraging right this interest on Mexican baseball so much that, that they were able to uh, ultimately break the, the color line, right? And, and, and finally been given the, well, they, they demanded an opportunity uh, to play Wrigley Field because Wrigley Field, you know, was for a long time prohibited um, Mexican baseball teams and as, and as well as Negro League teams from playing there. And so Los Zapateros, that team, became the first to really fully integrate uh, Wrigley Field. Um, and so they were using that leverage, right? Um, but also they were using their transnational connections, right? Because they essentially created a, a, a uh, an agreement with the Mexican Baseball League in Mexico City to then bring their teams, their champion team to LA and play it at White Sox Park or play at Wrigley Field. And then they would play the champion of the Mexican-American winner here in Southern California, right? So again, they were forging these transnational networks so much that they would then use them for political leverage and for, for building community, um, but also to 
offer, you know, opportunities for, for baseball players. Remember, this is the Great Depression, 1930s. And, you know, they were getting paid to, to be barnstorming and traveling to play games throughout the Southwest and Mexico. So, so you have many of the players from the Zapateros that go on to become essentially professional baseball players uh, and also, you know, play for the major leagues. And so I talk about one of those in particular, uh, Melo Almada, who, you know, is recruited by the Boston Red Sox in 1933 and becomes the first sort of Mexican national, right, to, to play for a major league team. Um, and that's huge because his his star really began with Los Zapateros, right? Um, early on, and even in the in the name of the uh, the team, right? They become they change their name from Los Zapateros to Mexico El Paso <laughs> because they recognize that by having Mexico in their name, um, again that would attract more fans and they would get more uh, contracts and um, you know opportunities, right, to barnstorm, to travel. And make money. That's very. It was very strategic when I read that um, that change, and I'll, I really like how. And I'm so happy you found the picture. Um, maybe because I'm also I'm a White Sox fan, but from the Chicago part. But um, <laughs> <laughs> the original, right? The this original picture of the White Sox ballpark. I was like, oh my gosh, están vendiendo tamales. Uh-huh. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is beautiful. That I mean. I, I grew a little attachment to it. I was like, I where to go on finding this picture? <laughs> That's great. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, so to go off on that, I think it's really also really important. You're, you've been speaking about these, these athletes, the zapateros and the boxers, but we, I think you need to also highlight how you've done such a remarkable job and bringing in the stories of the women, right? Las Aztecas, the Glendale uh, Señoritas, you talk about Lupe Anguiano. Yeah. I mean, this is not just a one-sided sports history. This is like di- very multidimensional. And you also, you do it, you link everything so so elegantly, right? Of how this is all affecting not just men, but also the women and the, the way women are able to negotiate gendered norms. And... Mm-hmm. When I think about sports history for women, I mean, for me, like the image that always comes to mind is, of course, because of media and because of, of it's just what I grew up knowing is, you know, a league of their own. And it was, you know, the movie about white women. Um, and so can you, but you challenge this, you even challenge the larger public perception of this, right? You give this history about how Mexican origin women have a role Mm-hmm. and sports history and can you i mean for those listening can you tell us a little bit about how like women are contributing to sports history throughout the 20th century and how you know they're redefining gender roles family and community yeah no i think i think that was really important to me in terms of you know finishing the book i i i took a long time i granted it took me over 10 years <laughs> to finish this and part of it because i i think that was one of the most challenging part uh, but also one of the most rewarding part that um, I needed to find a way to incorporate women into this larger story about the sporting Mexican diaspora. But initially it was really, really difficult. I'll be honest to say that there's very little written on it in terms of the secondary literature, but also in primary sources. I mean, you would not find an archive literally dedicated to Mexican sportswomen. period. And so I knew early on that I had to, literally 
go out into the community and find these women. And and so I, I think I relied on a lot of my colleagues, a lot of my friends, a lot of my relatives to really, you know, help me in that effort. Um, and so I really give credit to the Latino Baseball History Project, which is a documentation project based out of Cal State San Bernardino. And many of the uh, founding members there who really helped me in terms of putting me in touch with a lot of the women softball players um, and ultimately to meet them and then interview them um, because I really felt like that was missing in, in the larger uh, history of sports, right? That we, we tend to think that Mexican women are these sort of docile, uh, subservient um usually only fans of sports, but never participants of sports. And what I try to do in this book is to challenge that. No, these women were participants from the beginning. And even in Mexico, I mean, you have women basketball players, I mean, becoming state champions and winning like top prizes, medals at the Pan American Games. Um, and, And again, I really also wanted to, um, you know, get people to do more research on this. And so I hope that when people read this book, they they get inspired by, you know, maybe doing more research on this. So I certainly didn't do a a 100% job on on looking at women in every sport, but they tended to be primarily concentrated like in basketball, of course, softball, volleyball, and tennis, right? Those are the main ones. But there were also like in other sports that I don't talk about, like swimming, you know, uh, and so forth. So, so I think that there's definitely a lot of, a lot more room for future researchers. But yeah, you know, I, I, one of the findings that, that I that I was really surprised by, is how these Mexican American women really challenge the gender roles, but also in many ways become the forerunners of integrating teams. I mean. They were integrating teams and playing in multiracial, multi-ethnic softball teams way earlier than men were. And so when you look at, for example, um, some of the stories of like the Senoritas, um, you know, you have all interesting names like Bixies, um, you know, the Tomboys, right? I mean, they were already playing with African-American women, white women. Um, and you see also that in, in the story of Marge um, Villa, you know, she was very much playing with it, very much integrated teams early on before she made it to a league of their own. And league of their own, of course, <laughs> you know, Penny Marshall's film, we, 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 you know, if you watch that film, right, you only get to see a short clip of, you know, of an African-American woman, right, that gets like a small clip of, of you know, throwing a, the ball back to, to one of the teams. And that's it, right? And so you don't, you don't hear about Latinas, right? You don't hear about the Cuban players that played in the league of their own. And, of course, you don't hear about the Mexican-American women that played. And we did have Mexican-American women playing in the league of their own. So March Villa is one example. But you also had other uh, players as well. And I think um, a lot of that work you know, needs to be done uh, to really find out the full story. But yeah, I think all these women, you know, when I did a, when I did an exhibit on all the women softball players and Marge Villa came and another one is Ernie Hosaki Navarro. And so they really were sharing their story with a lot of the um, younger uh, people that, you know, they were really about, you know, equality on the playing field 
early on before you know we had that term feminist they were really our early our early feminists in many ways because they were challenging gender roles i mean they would sneak out of the house just to go play ball right <laughs> i mean it, it's it's amazing how they do anything to be out there physical exercising uh their favorite sport um and they continued even in their you know when they retire they continue to be athletes um and so they have a lot of lessons to teach us about the importance of physical activity, about encouraging younger girls and women to play sports, and and you know addressing the the equity, gender equity in sports because I think they were also doing that in their own way, you know, really challenging this notion of the of, of the sporting diaspora uh, that it, it really needs to be a, a gender diaspora as well. When we look at the way in which they were redefining femininity um you know they became in some in some cases they were much more masculine you know tomboyish uh but they were also reclaiming femininity as well so they had a hybrid forms of of femininities that we see in in sports that i think again needs to be further um developed and hopefully future researchers will, will do that you opened up a great terrain for this for, I mean, for more research. And there's, I mean, there's women across the nation. I know at least throughout the Southwest there are Latinas. I think I mentioned to you just in conversation, like even in, in West Texas, there were called, there was a group of women, of um, Mexican origin women in a baseball team called Las Estrellas, which we know li- very little about. I mean, that, that history is kind of coveted, but I mean, these groups existed and I think, you've done a great job of opening it up, right? Start creating this discussion and start asking people, right, to to question what else is out there. Um, I really liked how you also showed how women, right, Mexican-American women create a sportswoman identity in that it wasn't, it wasn't just a sport to them. It allowed them to negotiate, you know, the larger public, but also familial responsibilities, uh, cultural practices, um, the chaperone culture, um, but also gave them like confidence and empowerment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it goes across the board to the athletes that you speak about, right? And empowered them and gave them confidence given what's going on at the national level. Yeah. Uh, there's always the racial, the racial discrimination, um, mm-hmm. especially yeah. for, uh, I mean, Mexican origin people at this time, even, I mean, even current day today, right? It's important to not just look at them as players and appreciate their athleticism, but recognize they are humans that still have to deal with, with larger issues of racial discrimination, of gender discrimination, of, imp- of imposed and embodied stereotypes of them that have been historically made. Right. And so you do, I mean, although this is a sports history, you do a great job of showing, right. The larger implications of what's going on nationally. Yeah. I mean, I, I try to do that through Ernie, uh, Hosaki Navarro's, right. Just the fact that, you know, real quick, um, the fact that she was offered a college scholarship, right, because of her athletic ability, but yet had to turn it down because of the family pressure not to leave the family, right? Like the the traditional gender role that was imposed on her. I mean, I think, again, you know, what does that tell us, right, about how we're raising young girls and, you know, are we encouraging them enough, right, to, to pursue professional sports or not, right? And I think it's, I, I want Latino families to want to, I want them to do that. I want them to encourage them to take part in sports and, and not just amateur, right? Because often we think, oh, you know, 
there's no professional career for you. <laughs> but now we're seeing that that's not the case, right? We have women professional players in soccer and basketball. And so hopefully this will change, right, the train of sports, right, to be more inclusive of women professional sports players. Yeah, create, yeah, shape that consciousness of, you know, what's often found within um, culture, right, within, within, I'll say, Mexican-American culture of mm-hmm. gender, gender-specific roles. Um, but, but definitely with these stories, I mean, it gives role models, right, of who's already done it before and what they've, what they've had a struggle with. Um, I have a question, and I think, and it's something that just struck me because as I go back to what I stated earlier is that you learned tennis um, when you're at Washington State. And so can you tell us a little bit about um, some, any stories or memorable stories that have stayed with you in meeting people with for oral histories that really shaped, I mean, your ability to write this book and have left like a lasting impression with you? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that... Um... You know, I, I think that especially in like playing the sport definitely allows you certain access, right? So as as I started playing, right, I began to meet other players and then I started hearing stories, right, that they either once met Pancho Gonzalez or they heard of him, but, you know, they, they didn't know who he was. And, and so I think uh, through through that participation, it opened up a little, uh, a little bit more. It became a little easier for me to like then – you know, ask them to, you know, seriously about like, why do you think there is no more Latinos in tennis, right? So they would often give me like different answers to that question. And and so I began to, you know, think about um, this future project that I'm working on, on thinking about the larger history of Pancho Gonzalez and, and his impact on, on the sport of tennis. So so that's what I'm thinking of maybe writing on him for for the next project. Uh, but also, you know, I, I continued playing and I eventually became a captain of the tennis team and and so we're now the Warriors, <laughs> the, the of, of our uh, that's our team name. Um, and you know, I got a chance to um, interview one of uh, one of the Banjo Gonzalez's sort of mentee, and you know, and so he shares story that for him in the 1960s, um, that's how he got introduced to the sport of tennis is through Banjo Gonzalez. And so uh, he shared with me how important it was to see a Mexican American in that sport. And because he would he would never have gotten introduced to that sport. His dad would never encourage him, you know, because at that time it was considered a CC sport. Again, the gender dimensions of sports, right? It's, it was considered a, a very feminine kind of sport for men, right? And so, but Pancho Gonzalez, right, takes that sport and in some ways makes it very hyper-masculine, right? When you think about, you know, his imposing figure. And, and so you have these interesting stories about how Pancho Gonzalez has influenced a lot of Latinos, to enter the sport subsequently to, you know, his, his, um, his professional career and retirement and ultimately death. Right. And so I think that that continues. And I still hear stories about people who met him. And so I may be doing something on that in the future. We'll see. Well, I look forward to reading it. It's going to be, I'm sure it's going to be a great book, a great study to give us more insight about sports history through that one figure and the challenges and the accomplishments that he, um, that he's, did over his lifetime. Um, so Jose, we're at the, at the end of our interview and I just want to say thank you for speaking with me today. Um, it's been such a great pleasure, uh, hearing from you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure talking with you. Absolutely. And for those listening to this episode, which featured Dr. Alamillo's recent book, Deportes, the making of a sporting Mexican diaspora. 
published with Rutgers University Press in 2020. I really encourage you to buy this book and check, look at and admire the front cover because that's a that's a remarkable cover. The colors, the people, how it just stands out. It's great. So if you want to send me a message, you can find me on Twitter. And I encourage you to share this episode with fellow podcast listeners. Hasta la próxima.